This morning's scripture reading comes from two passages. Our first passage is from Genesis chapter 1. If you're using the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you, it will be on page 1. Genesis chapter 1. Please stand to honor the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Our second passage for this morning is from Proverbs chapter 24. If you're using the Blue Pew Bibles, it is on page 546. Proverbs chapter 24, page 546. We'll be reading verse 11 and 12. Hear now God's word. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, thank you for this word that has been read. And now we ask by the power of your spirit that you would give us greater understanding to your truth and that our hearts might be ready to receive what you have to say to us. Lord, if it's your will to bring comfort and consolation, would you do that? If it's to bring a word of challenge and conviction, would you do that as well? Whatever it is, Lord, that you will to do in our hearts, in our lives, we pray that you do so right now through your word, by your spirit, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start off by acknowledging that we are going to address an emotionally difficult issue this morning. Yesterday was January 22nd, And on that day in 1973, the Supreme Court handed down its decision in a case known as Roe v. Wade. In a 7-2 ruling, the court invalidated all existing state laws prohibiting or restricting abortion in the first six months of pregnancy. So what that means is that for almost 50 years in this country, as long as you're within the first two trimesters of pregnancy, you can get an abortion for any reason, or without even giving a reason at all. The legal rationale for this hinges on the determined point of fetal viability, the point in human development where the fetus has the ability to survive independent of the mother's womb. Now, in their majority opinion, the court artificially divided the nine-month period of pregnancy into three different trimesters, 
and decided that this point of viability starts at the third trimester. So only then, when the third trimester begins, do states have a, quote, compelling interest to protect fetal life through its laws and regulations. Now, at that time, it was widely believed that the Supreme Court had settled the issue that there would be no further litigation and popular opinion would continue to shift and be decidedly on the side of unrestricted abortion rights. Those justices in the majority could not have fathomed that 50 years later, we would still be talking about Roe v. Wade and that their decision actually has a likelihood of being overturned as early as this summer. Back on December 1st, a couple months ago, the, Supreme, the current Supreme Court heard oral arguments on a case known as Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. And it's about a state law that was passed in Mississippi about three years ago that restricted abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy. It was set up to be a direct challenge to the constitutionality of Roe v. Wade, and as well its successor decision that happened in 1992 known as Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Now, when you consider the current court's conservative majority and, if you, uh, and what observers have extrapolated from their oral arguments, this is the closest the pro-life movement has ever gotten to reversing Roe v. Wade. This could be a huge, monumental decision, and it definitely should be kept in our prayers. But, church, let's not act as if this is the most important step in defending the sanctity of every human life. Because just like Roe, Dobbs won't solve the issue or end the debate. Rather, it means that the debate can actually now begin in earnest in all 50 states and more on a localized level. Do you realize that even if Roe v. Wade is overturned this summer, abortion would still be legal in most states? It would just revert things back to a pre-Roe state of affairs where you have some states that are, that, that, where there is more accessibility to abortion and in other states there are more restrictions. That's why those who care about the unborn need to be focused not just on the legality of abortion but on its plausibility in the mind of your average American. The goal is not just to make abortion illegal, it's to make it unthinkable. We can't rest until the killing of unborn humans is one day viewed by the general public with the same kind of moral revulsion as the enslavement of black people or the legally seg sanctioned segregation of public spaces. That's what we need to work towards. And that, if that's ever going to happen, what that means is changing hearts as well as just changing minds. So this is going to be actually far more difficult than reversing 50 years of legal precedent. We're talking about reshaping what philosopher Charles Taylor calls the social imaginary. The social imaginary, that's, that's a society's collective understanding about how the world should be and how we ought to live in it. And so just as we have a hard time imagining how a past generation of Americans, even professing Christians, 
could justify owning slaves. It's hard to imagine how they did that. Well, in the same way, we hope that a future generation of Americans will feel the same way about our generation's attempts to justify killing the unborn. But for that to happen, for us to reshape the social imaginary, we need to lay out a strong foundation. I'm talking about a theological foundation rooted in the Imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of God. And we've been discussing the image of God a lot lately. Um, at the start of the new year, we started a new sermon series here, going through Genesis 1 to 11. And last week, we used the occasion of MLK Day to pause in Genesis chapter 1 to reflect on the significance of the Imago Day in relation to race and racism. Well, this morning, what we want to do is to now use the occasion of the 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade to draw out further implications of the Imago Dei, but now as it relates to life and abortion. And so I have three implications of the Imago Dei for your consideration. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll see, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, you'll see an outline in there, and I've listed out those three implications for us. First, because of the Imago Dei, Every human life should be regarded as sacred. Second, every human life should be protected as a matter of justice. And third, every human mother should be supported with compassion. So that's where we're going this morning in this message. Let's consider our first implication of the Imago Dei, and that is that every human life should be regarded as sacred. Now, before we dive into that, though, let's recall what we already learned about the Imago Dei. We saw how in Genesis chapter 1, in the creation account, the Imago Dei is what sets humans apart from other creatures that God has made. Now, we have to recognize and acknowledge that we do share a lot in common with all other living organisms. We are all created by the word of God's mouth. He speaks and all of us come into existence, not just humans, but all creatures created similarly. And we're made, as we saw last week, on, this day, on the very same day as all the other land animals. And so on that sixth day, God speaks livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth into existence. And later on, on that very same day, he speaks us into existence. So we share a lot in common. But the difference is found in what God says about us humans in particular. Look in verse 26. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so the key difference between human beings and all other creatures on the earth is the Imago Dei. The fact that we bear the divine image of God. Now, last week we emphasized that that does not imply a physical resemblance with God. The image of God is not found in our outward appearance. And so though we humans may differ from each other in skin tone, in hair color, in texture, in facial features, in age, in size, some of us may be as small as a blueberry or even invisible to the naked eye. But what we all share in common is the Imago Dei. Now, because of the, of the Imago Dei, we need to ask ourselves, then what does that mean? What, does, what do humans possess that all these other animals do not? 
Well, we said last week that the Imago Dei would include our rational and moral sensibilities, as well as our spiritual capacity to relate to God, to praise God, and it also includes our responsibility to exercise dominion, loving rule over all of creation. So those characteristics and responsibilities are what set humans apart from animals. Now we also said how the curse of sin, the fall of man, has not erased the image of God from us. It definitely has marred and blurred the image, but it's still there. We emphasized how no matter how sinful people get, how evil people can be, they have not and cannot lose the image of God. So those are some conclusions that we drew regarding what it means to be an image bearer of God. And we can agree that if you do bear the image of God, then you should be treated as a full-fledged human being deserving of all human dignity and human rights. But today, we're asking the question, when does a human being come into possession of this imago day? Or in other words, when does human life become sacred? As in set apart from the animal world and now deserving of human dignity and human rights. Now, some people are going to draw that line at birth. That's the simplest solution, to just consider life sacred at the moment of birth. This line of thinking is is even revealed in our vocabulary. Some people are very resistant to calling the child in the womb a child or a baby. They would insist, no, that is only a fetus. And only at the moment of birth would they finally speak of he or she now being a baby or an infant, now a full-fledged member of the human race. But birth, birth is such an arbitrary line of distinction. Since so many of us know from our own experience that children can be born prematurely and still survive. And so that means that they possessed in the womb the same human features and abilities as any other child who is born full term. I I think, if we're honest, the only reason we draw the line at birth is because it's more bearable to abort the child that you cannot see than the one whom you can see with your own eyes and hold in your own hands. Passing through a birth canal does nothing to change the existential nature of a child. The only thing that changes is our experience and our perception of that particular child. And so that's why drawing the line at birth is highly suspect. And which is why it's more common in our day, as we saw in the road decision, to draw the line at fetal viability. But the obvious problem with this solution is that the point of viability is always changing. Roe said it, as we said, after the first six months. And so that's between 26 to 27 weeks. But now, 50 years later, viability is generally considered to begin by the 24th week of pregnancy or even earlier. Viability is an elastic category subject to the availability of medical science and technology. So do we really believe that a viable fetus in the 21st century 
is somehow more sacred and more deserving of life than a fetus in the 16th century that would have not been viable at the same stage of development. Is a viable fetus in Manhattan more sacred and deserving of life than a fetus of the same age in Mogadishu? Is the morality behind abortion negotiable based on the where and the when that this particular woman conceived the child? If that's how human worth is determined, then that would be a rather cruel and cold calculus. And it only gets worse if you extend out that logic. Fetal viability is rooted in the assumption that you are not yet a full-fledged human if you are utterly dependent on your mother for survival. But, but couldn't that argument be logically extended to the one-month-old? Or to any child on life support? Or, or any child who has a severely mental or, or, or physical impairments who could not survive without the constant care of parents or other caregivers? Are they still worthy of human dignity and human rights? Or is that negotiable as well? Do you see how fetal viability is not a legitimate moral category for us to determine these things? Now, I know some would seek to bypass all of these arguments that I'm raising by by arguing that this question of, of when does human life become sacred is not even a question that the general public should be asking or trying to answer, because that question, they would argue, is a question that every woman must answer for herself since the fetus is part of her body, her body, her choice. But that kind of response is actually bypassing or trying to avoid the very terms of the debate. Because when you boil it all down, the abortion debate hinges on the status of the occupant in the womb and whether that fetus is a human person. Proponents of abortion are confounded by the other side and why they have such a hard time accepting the arguments of bodily autonomy. Her body, her choice. How hard is that to grasp? And my response would be, yes, I do agree. Her body, her choice. And so if the question is whether to remove her appendix, well then, yeah, it's her body, her choice. But in this case, if there is even a remote possibility that we are dealing with another human life, then we need to pause and to have this debate and to ask these kinds of questions. Because if it is another person in the womb, then what about that person's body and his or her choice of whether or not to be killed by chemical or surgical means. So that's why these questions are important. That's why we need to deeply consider them. Now, church notes that so far, I have not yet appealed to the Bible or to theology. You don't need to be religious to be making the arguments I've just been making. And that's why, that's why someone like Peter Singer the Princeton professor of bioethics, would actually agree that most of the arguments for abortion, in support of abortion, fall flat on very much the same reasons that I just gave. But Peter Singer is no pro-lifer. He is, in fact, pro-abortion, and he is even on record as justifying some forms of infanticide, killing 
of a born infant. On one hand, Singer would agree that human life begins at or at least very close to conception. He would agree with what most pro-lifers would say, but he doesn't think that that's enough to make abortion wrong. He would argue that while the fetus is a human being, it's not a human person. Personhood, according to Singer, is a matter of consciousness, something that a fetus does not have, and as well as a newborn something that they do not lack, self-awareness, self-consciousness. So ending their lives, he would argue, is not the same as killing an actual person, someone who consciously wants to go on living. So you can see how if you continue that logic and you continue to extend that one, you can see how that can be extended to even the elderly woman whose mind has been ravaged by late-stage Alzheimer's. If they don't have consciousness, self-awareness, they lose personhood. It is a deadly but frighteningly consistent logic. So if someone like Singer can agree with our pro-life arguments and yet land in such deadly conclusions, then I think it's clear that arguments that are rooted in logic and in natural law are good, but they are not enough. It's clear here that in the end, we need to make theological arguments. We need to appeal to the Imago Dei. And that, my friends, is what the Bible does. Listen to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And this is, this is uh, how the Bible condemns homicide, the killing of a human being, by appealing to the Imago Dei. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Notice how the value of human life is rooted in the image that it bears. And so that's why to murder another human is such a grave offense, not just against that person that you murder, but against God, whose image that person was made in. So abortion, when we come to abortion, the point is that the fetus already possesses the image of God. The whole point here is that the Imago Dei is an intrinsic quality within humanity. It's not extrinsic. It's not acquired once the human being achieves self-consciousness, thereby now becoming a full-fledged human person. No, the child in the womb is already a human person, who bears the divine image of God, and therefore his or her life should be regarded as sacred and defended at every stage of development. So that's, my friends, the first implication of the Imago Dei as it relates to abortion. And I think it has persuasive power because an appeal to the sacredness of that life in the womb is consonant with our own personal experience, especially those of us who have been expecting parents it's commonplace for expecting parents to give their baby a nickname while they're still in the womb. We sing to them while they're in utero. We read stories to them. We play Mozart to them to make them smarter when they come out. We stick ultrasound pictures on the refrigerator and we tell our other children that that's your brother, that's your sister in mommy's belly. 
Our instinct is to treat the unborn as a sacred human person, set apart from the animal world. This is another human being growing in mommy's belly. We, we instinctively feel that, know that, only, only if the child is unwanted do we begin to dehumanize the baby. Only then do reasons and justifications for abortion begin to make sense. But in our gut, in our gut, I don't think we can shake the feeling that Scripture is right, that every human life should be regarded as sacred. But like I said, friends, like I said earlier, for real change to occur on this issue, we need to change the social imaginary. We need arguments that speak to the heart. That Lord willing will reshape the social imaginary to the point that abortion is one day viewed with the same moral repugnance as we view chattel slavery in the 19th century or human sex trafficking in our day. We need to shine a light on the great injustice that is being committed against the most marginalized, most victimized, most oppressed minority group in our society, that being the unborn. Here's the second implication for us to consider. Because of the Imago Dei, every human life should be protected as a matter of justice. And I hope as we speak in these terms, it will begin to inflame our sense of justice for the oppressed, for justice for the victimized. Now, the passage of Scripture that I find most convicting in this regard that lays out in no uncertain terms our duty to defend the powerless in our lives would be Proverbs 24, verses 11 to 12, which we read earlier. But let me read verse 11 again. Rescue those who are being taken away to death, Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Now, admittedly, this command is general in nature. It doesn't give us a specific context, so we don't know exactly who are we talking about. Are we talking about rescuing victims from their attackers, innocent people who are wrongly sentenced to die, children being sacrificed to pagan gods? Well, in the context of the Old Testament, those, all those scenarios could be applicable so this verse is not directly addressing the issue of abortion today. But, of course, that's to be expected because you're, you're in Proverbs. You're, you're reading Proverbs, and you would expect in this book you would have to rely on God for spiritual wisdom that you're going to need to apply the generalized principle within any proverb to the specific circumstances you're talking about. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the generalized principle here in verse 11? Well, essentially, it's teaching that if a particular group of human beings are being wrongly taken away to death, then those who fear God ought to do whatever we can to rescue them. That's the generalized command that stresses the duty to rescue the oppressed, to intervene in some way whenever we become aware that they are being wrongly killed. But then in verse 12, a potential objection is raised by those who have neglected this duty what if I didn't know? Look at verse 12. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? 
Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it, and will he not repay man according to his work? So the writer here is acknowledging the possibility that this particular slaughter in view might be happening in a hidden manner, undercover, perpetrated out of sight. And therefore, some may try to excuse themselves from responsibility by just pleading ignorance. But notice the response. Notice how that kind of excuse doesn't hold up before an all-knowing, all-seeing God. The one who formed your heart in your mother's womb knows your heart and perceives your motives. So God knows why you don't want to know about the injustices that are taking place in your day. Why you want to remain in ignorance of these things. So, before God, we cannot escape. We cannot escape our duty to defend the powerless. So now, let's apply that general principle to abortion. Abortion, if you think about it, is a good example of a slaughter being perpetrated out of sight, and there are plenty of rationalizations for it. Whatever camouflage is used to cover up or to dress up abortion, this passage right here calls the bluff. Because not only does God know what we really know inside our hearts, he also knows why we willfully neglect to know about what's going on or why we try to rationalize, rationalize things away. So the most important thing that we can do is to speak the truth about abortion and to shine a light on the gross injustice that is being done. Abortion is one of the greatest affronts to human rights that is taking place in our day. So just as you, know, you see the headlines today about how appalled people are at the human rights violations that are being committed against the ethnic Uyghur people in Western China. There's so much news going about, about this genocide that is happening in our day. We, I would argue, should be equally appalled by the genocide of another people group that's happening right now, happening inside the womb. A seriously horrific aspect of abortion that you don't often hear about is the injustice of sex selection abortion. We're talking about specifically little girls being targeted in the womb. Now, we know that this is a massive problem globally. Research tells us that there are 23 million missing girls around the world today killed because of sex discrimination in the womb, because of a preference for a son or boys. That's a global problem, but we would be naive to think that it doesn't happen here in our country. Do you realize that there is no federal law prohibiting sex selection abortion in our country? And only 11 states have enacted laws prohibiting such a practice. This unjust discrimination against girls needs to stop, and we need to speak up for them, to be a voice for the voiceless. And there's also a disturbing racial disparity when it comes to abortion, with an imbalance of abortions occurring within minority communities. You know, we just celebrated MLK Day and all the progress that we have seen in the struggle for ethnic harmony, and yet the sad reality 
is that the womb is the most dangerous place for a black baby today, more dangerous than, than living in the inner city projects. In New York City, more black babies are aborted each year than they are born. That is a staggering statistic. And, and while representing only about a third of women of childbearing age, African-American women and Hispanic-American women, they only represent a third, but they account for over half of all abortions performed annually in the U.S. How is this not a civil rights issue? Now, I, I, I'm well aware that there are social economic factors contributing to those statistics, and, and that's why we do need solutions both in these underserved communities working with families and at the same time in politics working to solve these systemic disparities. It's hard work, but it's noble work. Abortion, on the other hand, is the quick and easy solution. Not easy for, for the desperate mother, not, not easy at all for her, but easy for elected officials and community leaders who are the ones responsible to find workable solutions for these struggling families. We need better solutions that don't perpetuate racial disparities in our society. And friends, I think one of the saddest results of abortion is actually the silent genocide of Down syndrome children. You, you'll read headlines praising the supposed eradication of Down syndrome, and you, you're thinking, oh man, that must mean researchers must have pioneered a cure for this genetic condition, when in reality, it's because, in our nation at least, 67% of, of pregnancies that carry an indication of Down syndrome are aborted. And that 67% is actually a low estimate. It's probably even higher than that. So we haven't been curing genetic disorders. We've been weeding out the unfit. As a society, we have stripped away the humanity of certain marginalized and oppressed minority groups. And that's why I do not think it's an exaggeration at all to call abortion one of the greatest affronts to human rights in our day. The victims in this case are baby girls, minority children, and people with genetic disorders. This is a matter of justice. And it would also include justice for vulnerable women who are facing the fears and uncertainties of an unplanned pregnancy. Just as we should hope for better laws to protect the unborn, we should hope for better laws to defend the cause of mothers, especially those who are abandoned by the father or ostracized by her family or community. We need better laws that enforce child support. We need better programs to assist single mothers. But more importantly, we need Christians in churches and in ministries to step up and to support these women with the love of Christ. And this leads to our third and final implication. Because of the Imago Dei, every human mother should be supported with compassion. I know you might find it difficult to relate to a woman who is considering to get an abortion or who already has gotten one in the past, but because we all share the Imago Dei, 
we share far more in common with fellow human beings than we might even assume. She might have a different attitude towards religion. She might have a different approach to politics, different views about the sacredness of sex to be reserved in marriage, different views on the sacredness of the child in her womb. But what you share in common is the Imago Dei, the image of God. And that alone calls for compassion and sympathy, appealing to the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And who is my neighbor? Any human being in distress, both the child and the mother. Love them both as you would love yourself. Now what that looks like in our case is showing compassion and trying to understand her dilemma. Giving her all the facts about the uniqueness and sacredness of the human person growing within her, that is important. But what we have to recognize is that for most women who get an abortion, they know that it, invol- that it involves taking a human life. They don't do so carelessly or callously. It is an excruciating difficult decision, but they find themselves abandoned without a support network, completely overwhelmed and feeling that their own life is on the line. In her mind, she's thinking, by having this baby, my life is going to be over. In her mind, it is a choice between me or the baby. Someone's life is going to be over. That's her dilemma which should engender within us greater sympathy and support on her behalf, not judgment, not condemnation. As sinners who are saved by grace, let us show the same grace and proclaim to her a gospel of grace, reminding women and men who have made the tragic choice of sacrificing their sons and daughters that forgiveness can be found in the Son of God who sacrificed himself on the cross for our sake and for our salvation. Now, I I realize that for some of you here, this whole topic of abortion gets very personal. There may well be women here among us who have had an abortion, as well as parents and or fathers who have encouraged a woman to get one. And I know that this sermon has likely unearthed some emotions that you have tried to bury away in the past. And suddenly you may be feeling once again this heavy burden of guilt and shame because of abortion. Well, this morning, you need to hear about the grace of God through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who can forgive you for your role in that abortion, who can make you clean again, who can make you into a new creation. You need to trust in Jesus. Come to Jesus and receive his grace. Receive his love. That's the good news of the gospel. And church, let let, let me just conclude here by giving a practical suggestion for how we ought to show compassionate support to the unborn and to their mothers. Consider with me volunteering at a pregnancy center. I told you in the past about the women's health clinic called The Source that is located just right north of us in that medical plaza. 
just right on the other side of Mattress Firm. It's just right there, right down the street. The women who come into these kinds of centers are, are filled with fear, shame, and confusion. So by listening, loving, and speaking truth, you are compassionately supporting both mother and unborn child. Now, there are a number of ways that both women and men can volunteer in the source. I've actually asked representatives of the source to come here today, and they have set up a booth in the lobby, so you can actually go and talk to them right after service and find out more about the services that they provide and how you might be able to get involved. As well, what we would like to tell you about is two other ministries. We wanted to tell you about Little Footprints Children's Ministry and their partner organization, Loving Houston Adoption Agency. So Little Footprints and Loving Houston. The goal of Little Footprints is to help at-risk families care for their own children. And Loving Houston is there to provide foster care and adoption options for those who need a deeper level of support, to providing them a Christian family to care for their children when they can't, either short-term or perhaps even long-term. So that, that organization uh, is going to be coming later on, actually, in February. They aren't, aren't able to make it today, but we do have brochures about the, their ministry available in the lobby. So I do want you to know about that and to be looking forward to them coming in February to tell us more about what they do and how they serve families in our city. Church, let us not just love in word and talk, but in deed and truth. For religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Orphans and single mothers in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's our faith. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for your comfort to be upon those who need it right now comfort that only comes through repentance and faith in Jesus. And may the gospel not just comfort, but also convict and challenge each of us to understand our role to play in this great struggle for justice and for compassion and mercy in our day, especially for the weakest and the smallest among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.